Hello, everyone, and welcome. My name is Jana Panaritis, and you're listening to the AgeWise podcast, where we give you strategies for aging well and wisely. And how do you do that when on top of struggling to meet the demands of your own life, you're also caring for an aging parent or a spouse, or maybe you're caring for another member of your family? Well, we're here to help. Each week, we'll hear from the experts, professionals in the field of aging, and people like you, unsung heroes rising to the occasion of caring for a loved one and finding unexpected rewards along the way. So stick around for some straight talk on aging in all its unpredictable glory. Stephen Zaret is a distinguished professor of human development and family studies at Penn State University. A pioneer and founder of the field of clinical gerontology, Zaret was one of the first researchers to study the effects on caregivers of family members with Alzheimer's and related dementia. He's received numerous honors and awards for his work, including the Distinguished Career Award from the Gerontological Society of America. Professor Stephen Zaret, welcome to the podcast. Thank you. It's a pleasure. For listeners who may not know, can you explain exactly what clinical gerontology is? Yes. It, in the sense that uh, of my training, it's um, the application of clinical psychology to working with older people. Of course, there's a great deal of clinical work in medicine with older people. Uh, this is the psychological side, uh, including where it interfaces with medicine. Okay. One of your recent studies uh, showed that caregivers for family members with dementia can help themselves by putting their loved ones in adult daycare. Can you tell us about that study? Sure. I've actually been studying adult daycare now for probably nearly uh, 25 years. And the idea is that many caregivers, particularly caregivers assisting a relative with dementia, are under considerable stress. If you're caring for somebody with dementia or other kinds of severe behavioral and cognitive problems, you don't get time off. You really need somebody there all the time who's actively engaged in monitoring the person. And so the most direct way of giving help in that situation is to give the caregiver time away. And for a variety of reasons, that can be difficult to arrange because Medicare doesn't pay for it. And often caregivers hold on to beliefs like they're supposed to do it all or they really can't put mother in a place like that without really knowing what the advantages for both of them might be. So what what the most recent work showed, and in a way it was the most dramatic findings, is that when caregivers of persons with dementia, uh, and these these would be spouses or daughters for the most part, when these caregivers use adult daycare, we see changes not only in their mood, you'd expect them to feel a little better when they're getting relief, mm-hmm. but we saw changes at a biological level in the body's responses to the stress process. For each day they used adult daycare, these stress processes moved toward more normal functioning. Mm-hmm. When they weren't using adult daycare, they looked like people suffering from post-traumatic stress syndrome. They had abnormal values of of, uh, stress hormones like cortisol that indicate a vulnerability to illness. So we think that getting regular breaks 
has a lot of benefits. And it's it's not just doing it because we want to be nice to caregivers and give them a break, but we're actually helping caregivers to maintain their own health while they're taking care of somebody who needs a great deal of help. Right. And that's really important to distinguish between anecdotal evidence, which anyone who's a caregiver or who knows a caregiver knows it's a stressful experience, but to actually measure that is really important to to show that there are biological ramifications. So how did you go about measuring that? I'm fortunate that here at Penn State, I have colleagues who have been pioneers in the study of daily stress, and they've perfected techniques where you can obtain samples of saliva in very easy and convenient ways. And that's where we get the measures of stress hormones. Now, it wasn't an easy thing to do. We asked caregivers to do a lot in order to get a a real sense of how the body's responding to stress. We got five saliva samples on a schedule each day, and we studied people for eight days. We studied them on days when they did all the care, and we studied them on days when they didn't do all the care. Now, the saliva samples then went to our labs independently without knowing what type of day it was. The labs analyzed the saliva samples for different stress hormones, and then we we were able to do the analyses comparing the stress profiles of people on days when they're doing all or most of the care compared to days when they're getting a break. Mm -hmm. And that's how we were able to show this difference. And were the caregivers provided with the results of the study? Yes. We've sent two detailed uh, reports at the completion of the study to everybody who participated. Mm -hmm. Were they surprised? Uh, Yes. (laughs) I, I think... Maybe not as much as we were, because these were fairly dramatic results. We thought there was something there, but we we just didn't anticipate how clear and dramatic the findings really would be. And how many were in the cohort? Approximately 170, okay. a little bit more. And did they vary in age? Yes, they varied from 39 to 89. Oh, so, wow. Uh, with an average age, I believe in the, oh, I better not make that one up. I don't have it in front of me. (laughs) But uh, yeah, so we had, you know, we had the youngish daughters in the sample. Uh We had some very old spouses in the sample. Did they start using the adult daycare services at the time that the study began or were they already engaged and did they they drop off later? How did it work? No, they were already engaged in uh, adult daycare. So we were doing something we weren't. We'd done previous studies that showed uh, when people enroll, you see benefits for their emotional well-being, lower depression, lower feelings of subjective stress. Uh But in this case, we knew that these stress hormones are responsive to daily stress. And if adult daycare actually lowers daily stress, which we think, which turned out it does, we should see that response in these hormones as well. Uh We know in ordinary daily life, these hormones are responsive to even minor hassles, Uh uh, the kind of thing, you know, that might happen at work or in a store or sitting in traffic, all those sorts of things. Our bodies respond to that. Mm-hmm. But here we were dealing with people with high levels of daily stress. So we thought the body would be responding to that. And indeed, when they're doing all the care, we saw very clear signs of the effects of that chronic stress. But what we also saw is 
when you relieve some of that stress by turning the care over to a daycare program, the caregivers of physiological responses change for the better. You know, I think adult daycare is sort of a mystery to a lot of people. Sure. What is it's it? Got a, yeah. yeah, it's got an unfortunate name. It's not babysitting. Uh, now, there are good programs and bad programs. Most of the programs I, I've seen have been good to excellent. And uh, in a way, when it's done at its best, it's providing stimulation and, in a sense, rehabilitation, not not in the usual ways, although they could be doing some physical rehabilitation, but helping people maintain their social, physical, and cognitive functioning for as long as possible. Uh-huh. Uh, and even in the face of a disease like dementia, if people can still remain as active and independent as much as possible, that will help the caregiver and certainly will help their quality of life. Mm -hmm. So were the families that were studied, were they profiled throughout the U.S. or were they in one central location? They were in about four different locations, five really. We uh, studied people in New Jersey, Mm -hmm. in eastern Pennsylvania, in the Philadelphia Allentown areas, in western Pennsylvania around Pittsburgh, in Northern Virginia, and and then in Denver. Mm -hmm. So in this case, what's interesting is that it's the caregiver's response that you're measuring. And obviously, you Uh want the adult to be in the most, in the best facility possible, or the best daycare. But it's really, (laughs) since you're measuring the caregiver response, it's that piece that's more important. So, Mm -hmm. um, well, I, th- I think it's important that the caregiver perceives the program as a good caring yes. program mm-hmm. and that their spouse or parent is going to be respected and uh, cared for in a very good way. And um, in our previous studies, we've, we did more to measure the quality of the programming. And we, we actually, in part, it was a selection of the programs we were able to involve in research we we tended to get the better programs, but they really didn't vary a whole lot. They had high levels of activity. They did the activities every day. People weren't just sitting around. Everything was kind of structured with a goal of improving daily quality of life. And we did see in a previous study that attending an adult day program had a, a therapeutic benefit for people with dementia, that specifically from the time they entered to about two months later, we saw a decline in the behavior problems that occurred in uh, late afternoon and evening, the period of time when the person comes home from daycare. So we could compare people like we did in the current study, only looking at the person using daycare. We compared them on days they were at daycare with days when they were with the caregiver. And what we saw was that their behavior problems went down considerably in the evening and the night after they had attended daycare. Oh, that's fascinating. And it makes sense. Yeah, sure. What are the problems? Agitation, restlessness, Mm -hmm. irritability, Mm -hmm. depressive behavior. Mm -hmm. And if they've gone out and been engaged, been with people, they feel better. Mm -hmm. We actually started this study in part because of things that caregivers told us and some of the providers we had worked with told us, which was that, well, caregivers would say, you know, my mother comes home from daycare and she's got something to talk about. Yeah. 
And we built on that. And we were able to see that that really was happening. Without the use of medication. Yeah, yeah. And these behavior (laughs) problems are the thing that everybody runs to prescribe. Right. Oh, dementia, we can't do anything about the disease, so we can't control the behavior problems. But the behavior problems are, in certainly my experience, they're often associated with immediate changes in the environment. Uh And if you have people in a good, stimulating environment, you get fewer behavior problems. Now, were the older adults resistant to this at all? Well, that's a good question because it's one of the things that people most often will say when they first hear about adult daycare. Mm -hmm. Oh, never. Sounds good, but (laughs) my mother would never do it. Right. And there certainly are people who won't do it. But over the studies that we've done now, we've actually found very few people, and particularly the earlier studies where we were enrolling people into the study before they used daycare at all. Uh We found very few people where the relative couldn't tolerate adult daycare. In Mm -hmm. some cases, spouses in particular couldn't tolerate the separation. And uh, there is one program that's now people are trying to replicate on a wider basis called ADS Plus, Adult Day Service Plus, where counselors spend time with caregivers to help them overcome whatever problems there might be Mm -hmm. with using it. Mm -hmm. And the initial findings from that study showed that compared to very good programs that didn't do this, people were more likely to stay in adult day services longer and caregivers had even better emotional responses Mm -hmm. than in traditional programs. Mm -hmm. Because for lots of caregivers, they don't even know how to have the conversation about an adult daycare center because it's so new for them. So how would they meet objections? That's really important. That's a really important. That's right. Yeah. That's right. Or they get into logically trying to argue, oh, you'll like it there, mother. uh, (laughs) And mother isn't going to like anything. She's not going to admit to liking anything. Right. (laughs) One of of the things we found, and this may be, again, a function of some of the programs we've studied. Most, Most of the programs we've studied have their own transportation. And the transportation is a key. I think it's easier for somebody to go off, you know, into a van than it is for the caregiver to drive them and drop them off. Really? That's fascinating. And one key, and I I really should do a study of this, I think they get these van drivers who just are very engaging people who know are natural helpers who know how to talk to people, know how to calm them down, know how Mm -hmm. to get them ready for the day. Mm -hmm. Uh, I've certainly heard examples of this and met some people like that, but I haven't done anything systematic. But we have gone through our data. Uh, I did this a couple years ago for a graduate student who really wanted to study caregivers who found that their relative just wouldn't go. And we couldn't find them in our data. We had people who used adult day for a short period of time, and that was it. But it was often only a short time because the person receiving care got sick Mm -hmm. or because the spouse decided, well, I'm better off with them at home. Right. But I think it's I think it's a great it makes sense to me that the, that the van drivers would be part of the whole process because that then it's an adventure and there and the older adult is made to feel special. So are the adult daycare centers do they specialize in dementia care? Some are specialized and only see people with dementia. Uh, Many have uh, special dementia programming. Some are just 
uh, especially the smaller programs, just integrate everybody in all the programming. So, so it really varies. Okay. So we know that caregivers of older adults experience high levels of stress, and that puts them at risk of physical and mental health problems. So what, what advice can you give to caregivers as far as you know, proven methods of, of lowering, lowering caregiver stress? Get help and get help early and make it part of your routine. Right. And the help includes both skills for managing daily problems that come up, behavior problems, emotional problems, just knowing that sometimes with dementia and sometimes just with anybody, you can't reason and you don't want to have an argument the night before about whether the person's going to daycare. You just want to kind of do the routine and say, okay, it's time to go and let the staff work it out, which that's what they're skilled at doing. Mm-hmm. So getting, you know, caregivers often get caught up in wanting their mother or spouse to say, oh, I want to go. Okay, I'll mm-hmm. go. Instead of just not having that argument and say, deflecting it. If they say, they say I don't want to go, you say, well, here, it's time. Let's just go and see what, how it turns out. and or, or find some other way of avoiding the argument and just moving things along. Mm-hmm. It's a real handling sort of thing. It's real tricky. It really depends yeah. on the individual too, doesn't it? Yeah. And it, it's tricky, but the the real key, I mean, I use, I've run support groups. And I remember this one support group that I ran, they loved the idea of little white lies uh-huh. <laughs> because they knew they, they all had learned, I didn't teach them this, but they all learned that they had to use them sometimes. Yeah. And we had one woman whose husband went to, actually happened to go to adult daycare, and she'd tell him he was going to work. And at the end of the day, the director of the daycare would give him a $20 bill and he'd give it to his wife and she would flip it back to the director. And he was happy. That's great. He would do things for them. He would... Uh, we had our meetings there, uh-huh. our, our support group meetings, and I would I would rent chairs and bring them, and he would help me unload them. That's <laughs> funny. He, he was working, and he was helpful all day. Yeah, and it was a job. Yeah. So we find ways of telling people things, not because we disrespect them or we don't value their personhood, but we do so because it's in their best interest to have a caregiver who gets rest. Otherwise, they're going to end up in a nursing home. Uh It really is about preserving some measure of dignity. My mom is 86, and she was diagnosed with early uh, stages of Alzheimer's about five, Uh five years ago. And I lived with her for three years after my father died. And I found myself, it's a real fine line to walk between just not blowing a gasket and getting really upset. (laughs) And then, and then also just being so respectful because you love that person, but it's a constant threading the needle. You're constantly feeling like, what can I say to achieve the end result without blowing my top and without insulting her without, and getting to the place I need to get to. So I think we really need to to look for ways to tell those little white lies, as it were. Um, well, and learning what works and what doesn't, because everybody's right. a little bit different. Right. And right. also uh, learning to recognize, as, as you did, that when you're reaching the trigger point, mm-hmm. because that's not going to lead to anything good uh, if you lose your temper. Because it's not a logical, you're not dealing with a logical argument anymore. Right. It's really all emotional. And... 
sometimes you can learn to respond to the emotions. Uh, one of my favorite teaching examples is this was a woman actually living in a an absolutely wonderful unit in a nursing home for people with dementia. But the staff, the program was new, the staff were new, and she was driving them crazy because she wanted to see her mother. And they would argue with her. They'd say, your mother's dead. Now, if she knew her mother was dead, she wouldn't ask to see her, right? Uh But they didn't understand that. So my wife was a consultant to the program and finally got the head nurse to think about it and come up with a different response. And her response was, not your mother's dead, but let's sit down and talk about your mother. And so they sat down and had a cup of tea. The woman insisted on putting out an extra cup for her mother, but they sat oh, and talked instead so of having her pace up and down right. and drive everybody on the unit crazy. You really have to kind of roll with it and assume yeah. that your logic isn't the same as the other person's. That's right. And mm-hmm. and figure out what she was asking for. What she right. was asking for is, what do you, why would you want to see your, your mother? Well, feeling lonely, mm-hmm. feeling anxious. And the head of the unit was able to respond to those emotions, uh-huh. and it it calmed her down. Gosh, that's really amazing. So what other um, teaching tools have you employed, if you can just kind of talk about that? One of them, like this, is we taught caregivers to think about why does somebody with dementia behave in a certain way? Why do they ask the same question over and over again? Caregivers get into all sorts of arguments over that when what they need to do is take a step back and say, you know, my mother has dementia. She doesn't remember. And she isn't going to admit to me that she can't remember because people with dementia can't remember that they can't remember. I'm That's sure right. you saw that in your own mother. And you can't win that argument. You can't say, have the person say, oh, yes, I'm sorry. I keep forgetting. Uh-huh. because it's not part of what happens with the disease. Uh-huh. It's as much as a, a reorientation <laughs> process for the caregiver as it That's is right. for the dementia care patient. There are lots of skills that caregivers need, and one of the things that have has fallen kind of out of favor in a way are support groups. Mm-hmm. But a well-run support group teaches all sorts of things like that. Mm-hmm. That's where caregivers learn it. We had one support group, Many years ago, where there's this one dramatic example where this was back in Los Angeles, where I did the first work on caregiving. And this caregiver is describing how she and her husband came to a busy corner. The light turned green. She tried to pull him, and he wouldn't cross. He just held back. And she's pulling, and he's, you know, and she's getting frustrated, and the light turns red, and she catches her breath. And she decides, and she's telling all this in the sport group. Mm-hmm. She says, okay, i got to do something different. So the light turns green. She takes his arm very gently and turns to him, and in her gentlest voice says, come on, honey, it's time to go. And he goes right along. <laughs> wow. So she says this in the group, and they say, you used affection. Yeah. What an idea. Yeah, what a We're concept. We're going to try that too. <laughs> and they did. And they came back the next week and they talked about how they were able to manage these daily problems instead of making it a push and pull situation, dealing by using affection. So those are the kinds of things that people can learn in, in support groups. But there are, there are also kind of technical skills, behavior management skills. Uh, People with dementia have memory problems, but they can still respond to reinforcement. 
so that if you only pay attention to them when they're being bad, they're agitated or upset, they'll be more agitated and upset. When mm. you pay attention to them when they're acting in positive ways, they'll mm. behave in more positive ways. Mm-hmm. It seems to me that there should be a mandatory class. Yeah. Family Caregiver Alliance in San Francisco, which is a wonderful organization, has been around since the mid-1970s, has always run introductory caregiving classes. And I think some of the bigger Alzheimer's Association chapters do that too, although they're stepping back, uh, it's my understanding, stepping back from providing service. Uh Can you talk about how the number of people needing assistance with day-to-day activities and medical tasks will affect caregivers and our country and what's driving it? Sure. Well, what's driving it is the fact that people live longer. Mm-hmm. More people live to advanced ages than ever before, and it's not uncommon for women to live into their 90s now. And while most of those people are healthy most of the time, many of them reach a point where they need assistance in varying degrees. And if it's a little bit of help, it can be done readily and usually without a great deal of stress or drama, but sometimes it becomes physically or emotionally or both demanding and uh, very difficult, especially if it's a spouse who's doing the care who may have her own limitations as well. Mm-hmm. It's becoming a growing issue in the political sphere. Uh, what would you like to see in terms of long-term care the attention in the political sphere. It's just... Oh, God. Well, let, let's start with the beginning and, and say what's true. We're the only advanced economic country without any program of national long-term care. Of course, we barely have national health care, but we, we certainly don't have national long-term care. And everybody else pays for it in taxes and pays for it early. The, the Japanese and South Koreans have an interesting program where they have national long-term care that you start paying for, not when you begin working, but at age 40, when you're actually beginning to think about it for parents. Uh-huh. And um, those are both countries with these very strong traditions of providing care in the family. And yet, well, who provides the care? It's daughters-in-law. And where are the daughters-in-law? They're out working. And so both countries have made this response, and at least what I've seen in Japan, I I know less about the Korean program, but in the Japanese program, which has been around, I think, since 2000, caregivers are managing better as a result of the help that they're getting. Uh So what the insurance does is it pays for community services. Mm -hmm. I don't know if they have... I should find out, but I don't know if they have adult daycare, but they have people who come in the homes, other kinds of help that family caregivers can use, and it's paid for by the long-term care insurance. Mm -hmm. Here, we have to pay privately, and for most of it, there are some people who are eligible through Medicaid, Medicaid, which is, yeah, yeah, Mm -hmm. but most people will be paid privately. Mm -hmm. I wonder what it is going to take for us as a country to really figure this out, because it's not like we have to figure out this huge, big problem all at once. It seems like, you know, there are small bore initiatives that can be implemented. And I think the cultural variations, I mean, we have so many different cultures here and people look at care differently. My family is Greek, so the last, and you know, family is really important. And so we actually waited a long time after my father died to even think about assisted living for my mom, you know, because Uh of the stigma or the perceived stigma really by my mom more than anyone else. 
And there are so many cultural there are so many cultural variances in this country. I wonder if you know in the Japanese culture where older people are revered, if that's one of the reasons why it's valued more. I'm just wondering what it's going to take, you know, in this country. Yeah, I don't know, but you hit on something which is a program with lots of choices would be the kind that would work. I mean, there are people who, for one reason or another, don't want to care or aren't able to care for a spouse or a parent. And for them, the ability to access a good quality nursing home is really what they need. But for others, something like adult daycare is is certainly cost efficient from a government perspective and from the caregiver's perspective. Now, we do have some programs that are very promising demonstration programs, like something called PACE, and I'd have to look up what it stands for, but Mm -hmm. it's essentially a program that combines social and functional care with medical care. It's kind of like a a medical care organization, MCO is the new jargon, but it includes attention to the person's daily functioning and quality of life. And where is that taking place? There are sites throughout the country. It was originally developed in a program in Chinatown in San Francisco called Unlock, and the model has been developed in a number of other sites throughout the country. It's restricted by income, so you have to be within a certain range of the Medicaid eligibility. Uh huh. Have you had caregiving issues in your own family that you can talk about? Well, my 90-year-old mother-in-law lives with my wife and me, and uh-huh. uh, she's uh, she does very well. But, you know, there are issues where she needs help and she isn't always willing or eager to get the help she needs. It's like anybody else. Mm-hmm. And how do you manage that? Um, being the son-in-law, I don't have to uh, <laughs> do the. I could be the good guy, but, uh, uh-huh. you know, I think the biggest issue we faced was when she really needed to give up driving, and that was difficult. There was a lot of tension for a while after she had done it, and she had actually set a date herself. Oh, but it's still, it was a very hard transition. Oh, yeah. It's hard. I mean, yeah. dri- driving is such an American thing, too. You know, the uh-huh. car. <laughs> it really uh-huh. is. How long has she been living with you? Uh, let's see. Probably about six years now. Uh-huh. And does anyone come in to help care for her? Uh, we have someone come in once every other week. We'd like that person to come once a week, but this is a compromise. Mm-hmm. And and she goes out to the local senior center twice a week. They pick her up Great. and uh, drop her off. Uh-huh. And then she's got friends she plays cards with a couple times a week. So she's got a full social calendar. Oh, that's great. And that, yeah, and that works out well for her. She uh-huh. uh, She likes to be busy, and when she can't get out, She's not happy. Yeah, it's good for you and it's good for her. Sure. (laughs) That's great. Well, as a professor, you have the ability to shape minds of young people. What are you hearing from your students about caring for older adults and how they view older age and, you know, getting older? Uh When I'm teaching courses on aging, of course, I get students who've been caregivers in one way or another. Mm -hmm. And so they're in tune with the problem and they want to understand it and they want to figure out better ways of doing things. And I think students feel an affinity for grandparents, um, especially if they have a good relationship with uh, grandparents. Mm -hmm. It's a relationship without all the conflicts of growing up that they have with their own parents. Yeah, interesting point. Yeah, It's the Bernie Sanders effect. (laughs) uh Uh-huh, sure. 
Well, listen, is there anything else that you would like to add? Are there thoughts you'd like to leave our listeners with? Well, certainly one of the things that uh, caregivers have told me over the years, I think is really the important one, and it's that getting information now, not putting things off. What caregivers have said to me, I wish I knew then what I know now. Mm -hmm. People wait too long. They get help later when they ought to get it sooner. Uh, They burn out. They get frustrated. They paint themselves into a corner where they don't have choices, where if they approached it in a more planful way, they'd see what their alternatives were and they'd be able to find some that might work better. Why do people things, things like put adult it off. daycare? Yeah, why do people put it off? Do you think uh, they don't know what the alternatives are, and they think they have to do it all themselves? Uh huh. And since this is the campaign season, I'm going to ask what you would tell the politicians if you had a chance to sit down with them. <laughs> where do you begin, right? <laughs> yeah, I don't know where I'd begin. Okay. I actually thought uh, the place to begin is don't touch Social Security, you idiots. But. The main thing would be to say this is not something that most people financially can plan for and it's very difficult emotionally to plan for it and they need a system of support and there are wonderful models throughout the world that we can learn a lot from. Well, Stephen Zaret, thanks so much for your time. He's a distinguished professor in human development and family studies at Penn State University. Steve, thanks so much for your time. I appreciate it. Oh, you're quite welcome. It's been a pleasure. Take care. Okay, you too. Bye-bye. That's our show for today. Thanks for listening. I'd love to know what you thought about today's show. You can email me at Jana at AgeWise.com. That's J-A-N-A at A-G-E-W-Y-Z, or Zed, as my Canadian mother says. You can also find me online at AgeWise.com. And listen to this podcast and lots of other fresh ones on the Speak Up Talk Radio Network, the 24-7 streaming and on-demand radio network that's always on for you. I'm Jana Panaritis. See you next time. Until then, age well, age wise. Age wise.